We read this morning the birth of Yitzchak, of Isaac, Sarah, and Avraham had hoped for a son, and it's only late in their life that that happens, and only one. The other thing that we read on these high holy days is the Akedah, is the binding of Isaac. And immediately after the binding of Isaac, the the next thing we hear, the only thing we hear after the binding of Isaac is about the death of Sarah when it comes to Sarah. We don't hear anything else about her from the time of the Akedah to the beginning of Parshat Chaye Sarah. For the rabbis, that has meaning. That has, there has to be a connection between the Akedah and the fact that the next thing we hear is about the death of Sarah. There are many Midrashim that explore that relationship. During the Hartman Rabbinic uh, Symposium this summer, we were privileged to learn from Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smokler, and she has a collection called Torah in a Time of Plague that I can't recommend highly enough. And in her talk, in her lecture, she brings forward the Midrash that says that the relationship between the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, and the death of Sarah is that Satan, Satan, comes to Sarah as Isaac. And she looks at Isaac and knows something is seriously off. And she says to Isaac, what happened to you? And Satan, appearing as Isaac, tells Sarah the whole story of the three-day journey to the mountain and his father binding him, putting him on the wood, and holding the knife ready to slaughter his son. And that it is only God, in the Midrash it's God, not the angel, God stops Avraham from killing Isaac. What's the relationship? He's standing there. If Isaac is standing there, what's the relationship between Satan recounting the story as Isaac to Sarah and her death? The Midrash says when Sarah realizes how close her son came to death, she was in shock and her soul flew from her body. The Gur Aryeh, commenting on Parshat Chaye Sarah, says, what is it exactly that did that to Sarah? It was davar mu'at nishchat. It was that it was a davar mu'at, a tiny thing, that resulted in Isaac not being killed. Lefichach niv hala. And as a result, she experiences this state of behala. Shock. Once she understands that there was a hair's breadth between her son existing and not existing, that it was a real possibility, that is so shocking that she dies. Aviva Gottlieb Zorberg in her essay cries and whispers the death of Sarah in beginning anew a women's companion to the high holy, high holy day says, Nivhala is not exactly shock. Behala, that state that she's in, is something like dizziness, even a kind of nausea. It's vertigo. It's not knowing where one is. A shock in the sense of the loss, a complete loss of orientation. I don't know where I am in the world. The Gore Aryeh, who I just quoted, says that this is universal that it is a common reaction to a situation of almost, almost, kimat, almost. 
almost. Is this person vaccinated? Is this person of my political parties? I'm about to open my mouth and say something. Is this person contagious? Is that hurricane headed our way? Is that fire going to jump that ridge? Almost, almost over and over and over again. It's a theological vertigo, says Zornberg, of asking what does anything mean if it's always so close to almost? If it's really just a matter of a millimeter, it could go this way, it could go that way. How do we understand anything in a universe that's put together that way? This is how we've been living for a year and a half. We thought we were finally coming out of it. We thought we were going to be at Barnum and have this sanctuary and the social hall filled. And then, kimat, then there's the duvar mu'at, the tiny thing, the hair's breadth, a change in the virus. One tiny mutation in a viral cell. Davar mu'at, the tiny hair's breadth, delta. And we are sitting in an empty sanctuary with you at home back in a sense of unbalance, a sense of fear, a sense that existentially, once again, we are at risk. Humanity all the time faces not knowing what tomorrow brings. We say it all the time. When we try to root ourselves in gratitude, we say it all the time. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's different when we come so close constantly to a sense of rootedness, reliability, order, coherence being gone. When the universe feels arbitrary, when the universe exposes itself as arbitrary. We have experienced this, of course, as individuals, in our careers, in our individual lives, in our families. But we've also been, for the last year and a half, dealing with this on a collective level. As a nation, as a world community, watching our world come undone, having such close proximity to death and loss. So many calamities all at once. Fires, hurricanes, so many things happening at once. The Jewish people are no strangers to catastrophe. What what kind of wisdom does our tradition bring out of our own experience of facing these kinds of catastrophes? The earliest one we suffered as a people was, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people of Israel. When Jerusalem was destroyed, so was the temple, so was the priesthood, so was the whole system of sacrifice by which Israelites made sense religiously and ritually of their lives. It was all gone. They knew no longer sovereignty in their own land. They were exiled, and if they stayed in the land, they were under occupying rulers. What does the Talmud have to say? That collection of texts and stories and imaginings that happens and is collected so soon after the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple? In the Babylonian Talmud in Bava Batra 60b, when the temple was destroyed the second time, large numbers of people in Israel became perushim, ascetics. They didn't eat meat or drink wine. So Rabbi Yeshua asked them, 
Why aren't you eating meat and drinking wine? And they say, Shall we eat flesh which used to be brought as an offering on the altar now that the altar is gone? Shall we drink wine which used to be poured as a libation on the altar but can't be any longer? And he said to them, Then we shouldn't eat bread either because the meal offerings have ceased. We should not eat fruit either because there's no longer an offering of bikurim, of first fruits, etc. So he said to them, come and listen. Tashma, not to mourn at all is impossible because the blow has fallen. To mourn over much is also impossible because we do not impose on the community a hardship which the majority cannot endure. The sages therefore have ordained, said Rabbi Yeshua, that a person may stucco their house but should leave a little bare. A person can prepare a full course banquet, but should leave out an item or two. A woman can put on all her ornaments, but leave off one or two. For so it says, If I should forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget. So the question the Talmud is asking is once we experience catastrophe, closeness, proximity to catastrophe, do we remain in awareness constantly of how fragile it all is constantly or do we ignore it? And the rabbis want to walk the middle path. The rabbis want us to retain memory of loss as well as contain it and what we learn from it. They ritualize it when building a house, making a meal, getting dressed, putting ashes on the head of the groom on the wedding day, which we know as breaking the glass under the chuppah. For the rabbis, they issue an invitation to luxuriate in life, but also to retain an awareness of the devar mu'at, the tiny hair's breadth, as a reminder. Rabbinic response to catastrophic loss is to continue to live, to paint, to build houses, to throw parties, to dress up, to seduce, to marry, to raise children, to mentor children. These practices retain the experience and we don't move on ever fully. We don't pretend everything is complete. We retain a taste of the loss without becoming mired in it or paralyzed by it. Our instinct, of course, is to move away, is to deny, is not to see, to distance ourselves from loss, to hide. Parts of us, our souls, have done that in response to the destabilizing reality we lived through and the losses associated with it. We have to find a way to accommodate this new reality, and how to live with the theological vertigo of coming undone, the davar mu'at that is always there. When we touch the davar mu'at, we respond by holding close awareness, but we don't allow ourselves to be overcome. We live inside a tradition that is reckoned in so many ways with destruction, despair, and loss, the dizziness of it all. And that tradition invites us not to push it away, but to find ways to build and rebuild. Aware of the Devar Mu'at, 
living on top of it, with it, in relationship to it, says Rabbi Stokler. This day is known as Yom Tru'ah, the day of the Tru'ah, that blast from the shofar. The Aramaic for Yom Tru'ah is Yom Yivava. What is Yivava? What is Yilala? Zornberg in her essay says, it's the wordless sound made by women, particularly at moments of birth or death. At extreme moments, when all normal patterns and understandings of the world break down. That is Yivava, Yilala, Aramaic for Tru'ah, the cry of the shofar. I spoke last year of mashber being crisis, the same word as for birthing stool, that moment between life and death. So the sound of the Tru'ah, what is that? The sound, that call, that cry, that yivava, that yilala. The rabbis say it's the sound of Sarah wailing when she confronts the vertigo and the shock of almost not. Kimachelo, he almost wasn't. When Sarah confronts, truly confronts the davar mu'at, the hair's breadth, that danger, that she lets out a yivava, a yilala, and then dies. They don't blame her. The tradition does the opposite of blame Sarah for that reaction. What's the proof? If this is the yivava, if that's the cry of Sarah, we blow shofar every year. We blow shofar to call us to, to tshuva, to repentance. So Zornberg says, if the shofar sound, the yilala, helps us some way to atone for ourselves, brings us to tshuva, there must be something that the midrash is wanting us to bear in mind. This midrash of Sarah dying. She says, I would like to assume that what the midrash calls to mind is something that brings us back to significant beginnings at this beginning of the year. What is our significant beginning it's actually reuniting, empathizing with a moment of the worst anguish possible. And when we blow the shofar, we are reenacting something about that and drawing on a certain kind of strength. What is the strength she's talking about? I believe what she means is the strength to walk that middle path that the rabbis lay out for us as early as the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. What it means to hold the pain, to remember, and to keep living aware of the duvar mu'at and not letting it keep us from joy. But Zornberg goes further. Not only are we supposed to hold the awareness of the duvar mu'at and live, but we're really supposed to be able to access joy and Zorenberg points to the verse from Psalms, the verse from Psalm 89, that is traditionally recited just after the sounding of Shofar. And that verse is Ashrei Ha'am Yodei Tru'ah. Happy is the people who know the Tru'ah. What does that mean? If the Tru'ah is the sound of Sarah's wailing in anguish, 
at the davar mu'at, confronting that hair's breadth. What does that mean, ashrei ha'am yodei tru'ah? Zorenberg says it means happy, solidly happy, realistically happy, are a people who know the tru'ah, who know what it's like to cry in the mode of yilala, of yivava, who understand life on that basis. Only such a people can go beyond that. We have faced a pandemic claiming hundreds of thousands of lives and livelihoods of people's homes, of their sense of a future. We faced painful divides in this country and we see so much real suffering in so many places in this world, including ones created by climate change that we have made a new danger, a new reality to those who are vulnerable. We will remember the Devar Mu'at. We will leave a place unpainted. We will leave out one appetizer. Leave off one bangle. Ashrei ha'am yodei tru'ah. We can know how a mature, reliable happiness is possible only by those who have looked into the abyss. We will never take certain small gestures for granted again. Ashrei ha'am. We will never take hugging people for granted again. My daughter, our children will never take for granted learning in a classroom with a real person, teacher in flesh and blood and peers. I will never take for granted for the rest of my rabbinic life teaching Torah in a room filled with students. I will never take for granted hugging somebody without thinking about it, should that ever happen again. We will remember the thin line between normal life and catastrophe, having experienced this time of Yivava. We will be present, hopefully, to one another differently in the shadow of this time. We will hold each other up with renewed energy, commitment, and vigor, We will celebrate when there is cause because we have looked into the abyss. And we know that the only healthy response to that is to lean into joy when it's offered and to face sorrow with the yilala of the brokenhearted. And we will hold each other up when that happens. Ashrei ha'am. Who know the sound of the actual tru'ah the yivava, the shriek of terror at frightening beginnings and the horror at tragic endings. Ashrei ha'am yodei tru'ah, mature, grounded joy and gratitude can be ours when we, as Rabbi Ross said, stand together. I quote Rabbi Alan Liu from his book, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. We stand together before God as a single spiritual unit. We need each other deeply. Here in the full flush of the reality of the life and death nature of this ritual, here in the full flush of our impotence as individuals to meet this most urgent emergency, our need for each other is immense. We heal one another by being together. We give each other hope. We know for sure, for sure that by ourselves, there's nothing we can do. 
but gathered together as a single indivisible entity, we sense that we do in fact have efficacy as a larger transcendent spiritual unit, one that has been expressing meaning and continuity for 3,000 years, one that includes everyone who is here and everyone who is not here to echo the phrase that we read in the Torah before the high holidays begin. All those who came before us and all those who are yet to come, all those who are joined in that great stream of spiritual consciousness from which we have been struggling to know God for thousands of years, we stand in that stream. Ashrei ha'am yodei tru'ah. Take all of that in with the sound of the shofar. Shana Tova.